Here the Voice in Prayer explores Christianity and belief in early modern Europe. This podcast seeks to understand the cascading changes and transformations to Christian belief in the years between Luther and Wesley, the age of early modern Europe. To know the world of Christian belief in the early modern age is to know our own modern society, its roots, hang-ups, and preoccupations. We will explore the contours, practices, and flashpoints in the story of European belief in the crucial time of modernity's beginnings. The Christian transformations of the early modern age are the origin of our own age. My name is Kyle Robinson, and I am professor of European history at Olivet Nazarene University. Join me as each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss the beliefs, practices, and hang-ups of the early modern age. Welcome to Hear the Voice in Prayer, a podcast on religion and belief in early modern Europe. This week, we're joined by Cole Bowling, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the history of magic and its relationship to Christian belief across this period of the long reformation of the world from Luther to Wesley. One of the fascinating features about this long reformation period of the period of European belief that begins with the reformation and concludes with the enlightenment is that we can see aspects of the magical aspects of the world beyond our senses in the way Christians talk about reality and the two people that bound our period that define our period both have encounters with the magical world. Luther famously throws inkwells at the devil, devils that appear before him in his study while he's translating the German New Testament. So too, Wesley, in his younger life, has the famous ghost, Old Geoffrey, that haunts the rectory at Epworth. And he will also say throughout his ministry, quotes like this, giving up witchcraft is in effect giving up the Bible. So we can sort of see then that these elements of magic, these elements of perception beyond our immediate senses still define a Christian worldview and aspects of the wider early modern world across this period. So, Cole, you're going to talk to us a little bit about that today, but first I wanted to start with, who are you, right? Who is Cole Bowling? Um, where are you from? Uh, what do you do? And what do you study here at Olivet Nazarene University? Yeah, so my name's Cole Bowling. I'm from the western suburbs of Chicago. I'm a junior at Olivet, and I'm majoring in political science and history with a minor in legal studies. Very cool. So this is, in a way, kind of right up your street, figuring out like the history of these things, what is sort of an exact definition that's very sort of legal studies type of things of what is magic, what is perceptible, all of those things. Do you think that's sort of maybe what interested you in this subject in the first place? How did you get into this world of magic? So one, I think that's true. I love like the whole like, political aspect, the whole like legal, like defining like what actually is magic, where did this come from? And like I've always been one who kind of liked the supernatural world a little bit. Like I big into superheroes, which I guess I mean that's still supernatural. It is right. Yeah, they're violating some laws of nature. Right. right. So. so like I love superheroes. Uh, recently, I got when I was like a freshman, I started watching a lot of horror movies with like my roommates and oh, very guys cool. on my floor. And like I really like all the ones that deal with like magic, kind of witchcraft, partly because it can be true. So those are kind of the ones. Yeah, there's I like, like that element of almost believable in exactly. some of those things. Yeah. Exactly. So I really liked that. And then when I started researching for the paper, I found a ghost story from the 18th century. I was like, oh, that's like really cool. Yeah. And when I started diving into it, I realized that like the Protestants have a view of magic and then the Catholics kind of another view, which right. I, I grew up Protestant and I was, I never knew that there was like 
a, some people in the church believed like a sort of magic or right, believed that there's a, a magical element to Protestantism too. Exactly. Like yeah. I just never. I mean, I grew up knowing like those Wicca and those all this yeah. other like magic Bad pagan. Like, yeah. but no. Yeah. But then I was like, oh, like what really is magic? Do the Protestants believe in it, or is it? Do the Catholics have magic? It just kind of came out of that. Yeah, one of the things that I guess fascinates me about the subject of magic in the Long Reformation is how it actually does split up into these confessional divides. Like you say, that there is a, a Catholic form of magic, a sort of Church of England, Anglican form of magic, and then also even Puritan sort of critiques of magic and sort of wrestlings with magic as well. So again, the centrality of sort of Christian change to everything, even things like magic and the supernatural reflect transformations of the Reformation. So... I think, though, we should start maybe with what is magic, right? We've been talking about it, but sort of what, how would you define magic? Uh, so magic is broadly defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as the use of ritual activities or observances which are intended to influence the course of events or to manipulate the natural world, usually involving the use of occult or secret body of knowledge, sorcery, witch, and witchcraft. So really, magic is anything that kind of folds or creases the fabric of the natural world. I personally would believe that magic is really anything that we can't explain. So like if you see something like, oh, what's like, like affects the natural world in a way that's like unnatural, like says, unnatural. Right, beyond uh, nature. Beyond nature, yeah. I would say that that's magic. But a big thing, I heard a quote from, I actually think it was Doctor Who, but I don't know exactly where it came from. <laughs> yes, substantial authority. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but the quote was was along the lines of, like, to the untrained eye, uh, technology is just magic. Like, the mm. technology that we don't understand, we call magic. Right. So I think a lot of the magic is kind of not necessarily there. It's just something that we can't explain. So, like, when I see, like, oh, that's magic or the magic that we see on, like, America's Got Talent, I would define that as either, like, a skill or even a technology that, that, that we can't see or comprehend, so it appears to be magic. Right. And then I think also the big difference is during the Reformation and kind of before the, in the Middle Ages that there was different types of magic. So you had dark magic, which was like necromancy, like your devil-worshipping magic. Right. It was usually sourced from the devil. That's kind of what fueled it. While, and also like curses come out of that, that dark magic. It's like the evil. That's what all, When we think of magic, that's what we think of, like all this dark and evilness. But then there's also white magic, which is more like herbalism. It's a, little, a lot of helping. The, the big thing is healing of the sick. I, I'm sure I'll talk about it soon. The whole like how society was just ridden with disease. It was awful. Right. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Right. So yeah, what I think sometimes we can, again, as you say, think of magic as simply like spells or manipulation or sort of the casting of the future, right? Horoscopes and things like that. But as you say, there's this other element to magic too, right? Something that's just simply not explicable, right? Or something that helps you process things you can't understand. And I think one of the major things you can't understand in this time period is disease, right? Systemic, widespread disease, suffering. So magic, in a sense, is a thing that can help you process that, can help you understand uh, that idea, right? Why is there disease? Where is it coming from? How can I respond to it? Is, is that something you sort of see in your assessment of magic? Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I read um, an article... Well, it was actually, it was from the 18th century. It was a writer who was saying that, like, they saw, like, rats leaving, like, their, 
the the hives or wherever yeah. they live. But the dog, do, yeah, do rats live in warrens or nests? I don't I don't remember. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't know exactly. But like <laughs> from like the underbelly of the earth, they were coming yeah. up through like the streets of London and all these things. And all the doctors were like, they saw that. Like that's weird. Anywho's the devil. Yeah, like exactly. they just like they didn't yeah. connect that. Like it was, they actually ended up killing cats and dogs. So they thought that's what was the virus are coming from. When mm. in reality, those things would kill the rats. Yeah. So then then. And it then, exacerbated the problem. And yeah. so many people were dying that they were like, well, how can we, like, how can I save my family? How can I save myself? I think the life expectancy was like 40 years old at this right. time. So then they would go back to what they knew, which was magic or this like cunning folk version of magic where these men who were called cunning folk would go around and they were basically like, if you do this certain like enchantment or this prayer, it will heal you. Or I have this like drink, like drink this and it'll help you. In some cases it worked. They were all like, well, that, then it must be true. Right, and this proof, disease right. must be the devil. Yeah, the cunning men are fascinating. They're almost like the sort of popular magic or like shaman almost or witch doctors in a sense, but sort of without the sinister implications maybe of a witch doctor. Just sort of your local sort of pharmacist maybe who has some special yeah. powers might be a good way to think of cunning men. And a lot of them were like, they didn't take a lot of like money. Like they did right, it because yeah. they were trying to help. Whereas we have the whole vision of the middle ages and of this time that like magic, there's a bunch of curses. Like I right. curse you. They're it's angry magic. Yeah. When really the majority of it was trying to help and just improve their society, which was just awful. Right. So what then specifically would you say, right? If we have this magical world all around us in the early modern period, all around us um, from the time of Luther to the time of, of Wesley, what, is Christianity's specific relationship, would you say, maybe before the Reformation first to this idea of the magical, right, in European experience? Well, first, I think we can go all the way back to, to the Bible during mm. like the ancient Hebrew times. The Bible actually condemns magic or witchcraft. In Leviticus 20, 27, um, it says, A man or woman who is a medium or a spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them, their blood, and their blood will be on their own heads. Hmm, that's pretty clear. Yeah. It's pretty, but then when I was reading it, I realized that's more like that dark magic. They're yeah. the ones speaking to like the dead or speaking to demons. It's not, this is not necessarily that white magic that I've defined. It's more right. of this evilness. But still, you could still interpret it as magic in general. And I, I think the Christian church, and then during the Middle Ages and the Reformation, when I'm talking about the Christian church, I'm meeting the Catholic church. Right. Especially, yeah, before the Reformation, because it is the Catholic church. That's yeah. all that yeah. was there. Yeah. Um, and they kind of took this and they were like, magic is, magic is bad, except for they kind of had their own version of magic. Uh, that can be seen in like the ex the exorcisms was a little bit majestic. Right. Holy water is a big example. Right. Um, Some people even interpret the Catholic idea of transubstantiation as something that's maybe even akin. I don't want to be sort of Catholic blasphemous, but sort of <laughs> akin to a type of magical thing because it's a like the real presence of Christ in something that still looks like bread and wine is sort of this in a sense like you were describing magic earlier, like this thing you don't understand that needs a, a non-sensory explanation, like yeah. transubstantiation. Yeah, so there's this, like a Christian arsenal, we might say, of magic that the church has in its pocket to fight the black magic, right? To sort yeah. of counter the evil, the devil-inspired magic. Definitely. And then I think a big thing is also like miracles, like you see them in the Bible. I'm sure they were happening in like the... I, but a bunch of some like the white magic healing, like with the saying of like the chant to heal yourself was probably somewhat of a miracle because we say that we get that in the Bible. Right. 
So like that whole idea, but like that appears to be magical. Right. Like, so yeah, if you're steeped in a Christian culture, then you would say if, oh, if the cunning man is doing this, well, maybe that's an, a sort of current miracle, right? The continuation of the miraculous from the time of the Bible. Yeah. And then the Catholic church's idea of the, of the saints can be turned to magical, how they kept like their heads or their fingers. Right. The relics, right. The and the, relic. the, the magical workings of the true exactly. nail from the cross or splinters of the cross or things like that. So, the Virgin Mary's toenail, all, the, yeah, all those things. So all the but, relics are appear to be magical, but it's kind of like this Catholic magic, which right. I think it goes back to like, I think it's called like ecclesiastical magic. Like right. something, some stuff in Ecclesiastes that's like this type of magic. Or even, I would even say miracles are in a sense a form of magic. Right. Something we can't explain through our natural perception of the world. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. And so, yeah, so I think it's important for us as you're doing to clarify that that type of magic is licit, we might say, or acceptable because it's from the authority of the church, right? It has the authority and approval of the church. And that's in a sense what makes it, as you say, acceptable or, or white magic, we might say, or something like that, as opposed to, again, manipulation of things born of the devil, right? Born of darkness and, and black magic, as we would say. Yeah. So what does the, maybe what does the Reformation change in a sense with that relationship between the church's magical arsenal and yeah. the devil, yeah. <laughs> so the Reformation kind of looks at the verses in Leviticus, and there's a few others that deal with magic, and they say, okay, that's all magic. All right. magic is now bad. Right. So that includes holy water, exorcism, uh, any little saying supposed to help you ward off certain like spirits that are deemed Catholic. Right. They would say, well, that's now evil. That's bad. The Pope is the devil. Right. Uh, you're all devil worshipers and all this stuff. And then I think, personally, I think that more goes into, that they're not anti-magic, they were anti-Catholic. Yes. So anything that was labeled Catholic or that the Catholics did, they were like, well, that's bad, that's evil, it's the devil, magic. Right. And so if the Catholic Church, in a sense, has, quote unquote, power in this regard, in this sort of ecclesiastical magic, then it would make sense that Protestants would condemn that, all of that as nonsensical, as made up, especially, as you say, when you can as a good Protestant, sola scriptura style, say, right, aha, clear evidence from scripture that this is condemned, that this is not allowed. Yeah. Right. So again, as you say, it becomes this emerging critique of Catholicism as backward, as magical, as not true faith, um, as opposed to the sort of rock-ribbed Protestantism that emerges after Luther, right? So Luther, though, does have some relationship, as I said, to the ghost world into the magical, right? Have you seen some evidence of that? Even right, our very first Protestant is still kind of caught up in this, this world of, in a sense, those things beyond senses. For him, though, I think a lot of it is the devil, I would say. Luther, Luther's interesting. I know there's a quote that he says, he's like, I farted in the face of, of the, de right, of yeah, the so devil he, at night. Right, so for the, Luther, like the devil is like a, not a metaphor, right? It's like a real physical presence. Uh, and like I said earlier, he sort of famously throws an inkwell at the devil, right? And you can sort of splodges over the wall and you can still go to the Wartburg, this castle in Germany, and see where Luther threw this inkwell at the devil, supposedly. Yeah. And he records it pretty clearly in his table talk, which I think was like 
some scribes around the right. table Luther right. would sort of say. Luther right after, after hours Luther, exactly. basically, yeah. He said, one quote I wanted to read was, he goes, then about six weeks after I had received that said book, it fell out, and I began, I began in bed one night between 12 and 1 o'clock. My wife uh, being asleep by myself, yet awake, there appeared unto me an ancient man standing at my bedside, arrayed all in white, having a long and broad white beard, hanging down to his girdle steep, uh, who taking me by my right ear and spoke these words, fulfilling unto me, Sire, will not you take time to translate that book which is sent unto you out of Germany? I will shortly provide you both time and place to do it. And then he vanished away out of my sight. Mm. So yeah. Luther is saying that he's, he's saying it's not a dream, that he's awake, that he sees a man who clearly grabs him and gives him Physical instruction. Physical touch, yeah. Like, it, like it, it happened. And I find this interesting because... This isn't te- so he's not saying this is the devil. He has said he's seen the devil, but right. that's kind of like, what, what did he mean with, with yeah. that all figurative? But then you said he threw the ink well, right. so did he really think something was there? Right. And seeing this goes into like seeing a vision or a, almost a ghost. Right. Um, isn't that this was real and that like the whole physical touch makes me think that like maybe Luther did see someone, yeah. which is interesting. And I think Luther is almost more credible in the sense than maybe Wesley. Because mm. in when Wesley- You don't believe in old Jeffrey? <laughs> well, but it, but he was a kid. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's the point. True. John Wesley saw this ghost that haunted his house. That he would like move things. He would like say things to them. They call, that he right. and his sibling called Old Jeffrey. But John Wesley was a kid when this all happened. Right. Luther's an adult, right? Living with his wife. I forget exactly when this was written, but like he was clearly adult. And then I believe it was when he was hiding away in right. the Wartburg. Yeah. Wartburg. Yeah, when he was hiding away in there. And then maybe it's been known that Luther was also kind of drunk, enjoyed the drink right, a little yeah. bit. So maybe he was intoxicated. A classic German. But yeah. we, d- we just don't know. But yeah. I think Luther is more credible because he was an adult while mm. kids have a wild imagination. Right. And I think it's, again, fascinating, too, to think about this in the context of Protestantism and to think about what we were talking about earlier of sort of accusations of the magical being a critique of sort of Catholic practices of the cult of the saints, of transubstantiation and sort of saintly intervention, all of those things. While at the same time, right, you say Luther has this vision. We're not like sure. Is this like a Dr. Faustus moment, right? Where sort of sell me your soul and I'll give you these publications, right? Or something like that um, that's going on. And I think that's what makes it hard for Christians to deal with this issue, right? Because one of the basic premises of Christianity is that there is in fact a world beyond our senses, right? And that that is true. And that Luther's quest for a personal faith also involves, right? That constant personal relationship with, again, that element that is beyond your senses. So how do you parse out then what is an acceptable vision? What is the devil? Is magic real? Is magic just fake invented by Catholicism to scare you into being in the church. Like those are unresolved issues for most of this period, right? That people are, are working through. And you spend a lot of time sort of processing how that's done within the English context uh, specifically, right? And your primary sources are in this English context. And I find that fascinating mainly because we can oftentimes think of, of England as sort of this vanguard on the way to the secularizing process, right? This place that experiences the rise of the middle class first, this place that experiences the public sphere earlier than a lot of other places in Europe, a consuming, literate public. But yet there's still this debate in the great Augustan age of literature in the 18th century, right? The age of Swift and Defoe and all of these people of a debate over, are ghosts real, right? 
Can you tell me a little bit about maybe the historical narrative of how the Reformation in England unfolds in relationship to magic? What are some maybe some of the changes in the 17th and early 18th century in regards to this, or even maybe before in the 16th century, right? The early stages of Henry VIII, the Henrician Reformation. What is this process and how do we get to the point where we're still discussing this even in the 18th century, even at the dawn and origins of the Enlightenment, where Locke himself, John Locke himself, the father of the Enlightenment, is talking about things that are beyond our senses and considers maybe that there really are things like apparitions and ghosts and Daniel Defoe and and others are, are in this world of considering the reality of these things, right? Our sort of great early classic participants in the English culture of the Enlightenment. So what is maybe your your take on how the Reformation unfolds in England in relationship to things like magic and things beyond our senses? So the English, I primarily use English because I can read it. <laughs> that, that always helps. That's yeah. kind of like why I focus a lot on like the English perspective, but... I think where we can start is actually looking at Parliament and what the laws on witchcraft and magic were, because uh, what the start, uh, magic was actually illegal, uh, according to the Parliament's web Parliament's website. In 1542, Parliament passed the Witchcraft Act, which defined witchcraft as a crime punishable by death. It was repealed five years later, but was stored by a new act in 1562. Uh, and then there was a later act in 1604, which moved the ruling from a church court to a common court. So at mm. first it was all church dealings, like the church dealt, the church ruled. And then slowly in 1604, kind of like when the church started to lose, start, when it started to lose a little bit of its grip on society, it was moved to a common court. So a secular court. Yes, a secular, secular court. court. Uh, church control, a uh, court con- controlled by the state. Right. Which is, again... Another one of these fascinating components of the Reformation, especially of magisterial Protestantism and sort of this larger narrative, right, that we start out with these transformations in the church that then affect transformations in government. We sort of see the rise of the nation state yeah. is another one of these narratives that's um, a part of the early modern world and sort of influenced by the these changes in, in Christianity. So 1604, we get a new witchcraft law. What is that? So, about, yeah. so 1604 basically just moved it to the secular court, and there it was still deemed an evil act punishable by death. But then in 1736, Parliament passed another act that repealed the laws against witchcraft, but um, it started to impose fines and imprisonment on people who claimed to be able to use magical powers. So it moved it away from death and made it more like it was still illegal, but it was now it was more of a fine and you would be in prison, you wouldn't be put to death. Right, and there's kind of a change in perspective, I think, in that 1737 law, isn't there, where sort of prior witchcraft laws assumed the reality of witchcraft, and that's why it was punished, but the 1737 law assumes that witchcraft is false, and anyone who claims to be a witch is basically what we would now call a type of con man, and that's why he's fined or imprisoned or punished in in that way. So the assumption changed. So that's why, again, this period is so pivotal pivotal um, because we have that transforming perspective, right? And basically just over a century, 1604 to 1737, we have a fundamental shift then in what it means, what witchcraft means from something that's legitimate and real and needs to be, right? The state needs to intervene. King James I needs to pass a law um, to stop this too. Now, under our Georges, um, we have 
I think it's King, is it King George the first still? I think I'm not sure. Maybe George the second. I think it's the second. George the second in 1737. Now is the perspective is this is fake and anyone who claims to be doing it is cheating you. And that's the origin of that witchcraft act. So we can see then, I think one of your points that I've heard you say before is that a lot of this was related to the state then and, and power and, and legal changes. I don't know if you, you, do you still agree with that idea? I would. I think it also plays into, I mean, not kind of yet. Like, obviously we have parliament here. And I think the more and more parliaments around, you see the more and more they're trying to take more power away from the king. Away um, from a hierarchical church, right? That's one of the key flashpoints of the Civil War. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially in the 1700s when you had William Blackstone who wrote the commentaries oh, of right, the law exactly. of England. Yes, I had forgotten about that. Yeah. So like that whole like big law and period was really right around the 1700s, right around like the Enlightenment with John Locke. That's right. when you had Parliament was like, hey, like this is starting to happen. I mean, Magna Carta was 1215 where they said um, that the king is under Parliament's rule. Right. And ever since then. We have this uh, accumulation. Of right. this the, right. uh, the parliament gaining more and more power and prestige. Right. And then by the end of the 17th century, we actually have parliament deciding who is going to be the king, right? That's the whole point of the Glorious Revolution. A Catholic king comes to the throne in 1685, James II, and then by 1688, parliament has effectively kicked him out, right? And invited a Protestant king to take his place, right? So yeah, a change in the law then is, part, is also connected to changes in perceptions of witchcraft and magic as well. Yeah, because yeah. it moves away from like, because the whole goes back, like, whatever the religion the king has, that th that's the religion that the nation has. Because when you see that parliament gains more and more power, that idea of, like, no, you can be kind of whatever you want to be. Right. And sure, England's a little different because you have the official church, the Church right. of England. But even even then, there's kind of a little bit more, like... Wiggle room, we might say, for Protestantism. Yeah. Well, And then you had the whole... Um, where they allowed other religions to happen. Not, oh, not Catholicism. Right, not Catholicism. So yeah, the Toleration Act of 1688-89, depending on which calendar you're using. Yeah, Like that so. allowed for all of the, like the Presbyterians kind right. of do their thing, the Calvinists. Which Quakers, kind of, Baptists. Baptists. Yeah. The Puritans, well, the Puritans. As no they one, transformed themselves. No one yeah. really liked them. That's right. why they got shipped off. Right. Now we have America. Right, exactly. But, <laughs> yeah. But basically, but then anything, but and that's why it goes back to my point. They were just, they were anti-Catholic. Right. The whole time, even when they Aha, were fine with the yes. Protestants, they were like, but not not you Catholics. You, right. guys, you guys are evil. Right. You're still a threat to the state. You're still a threat to a Protestant notion of reality. You're still a threat because you're, in a sense, hanging on to this older medieval magical notion of how power and reality can operate. And then also, I think, comes in, but then you have the Puritans who want to purify the Church of England even more. Like they say, right. no, the Church of England... You didn't go... Or you're not going far enough. You're not going far enough. Like, right. you're still almost Catholic. Right. You have these, like, vestigial remains, right, of Catholic practice, especially in the mid-17th century, um, which is why you have these Puritan debates over what's on the altar or what the priest wears, right? Because these are those symbols of that older, more magical, more sort of less sola scriptura, less sola fide, right, faith alone, scripture alone, elements of Catholicism that they see as... Reminders, and I guess, right, reminders of this older system that they think not only are spiritually corrupting, but corrupting to the body politic. Too, yeah. Right? yeah. I found that the Church of England is very interesting how they become yes. Protestant. It remains so to this day. Yeah. It, it's, and yeah. it, it goes into they had like the different leaders. Like any time right. that you had a king, that was his religion. So anytime you had a Protestant starting to like reform the church and make it more Protestant, 
he would die or get killed. And right. then you have the Catholic. Who, right, Queen Bloody Mary. Who right. redoes everything. Yeah. And it's just back and forth, back right. and forth. And then finally, when you get the whole, like with William and Mary, then you right. get the whole recession, all the Georgias who are Protestant. Right. But yet they don't go any, they don't, they don't take it as far as like the, what the Puritans or even right. the Presbyterians would want. Right. It almost makes sense, right, after that experience of such a turbulent back and forth that by the end of the 17th and beginning of the 18th century, people would say, well, let's, let's just stop talking about it. Let's stop yeah. fighting about it. Let's try, let's do this whole reasonable thing too, right? But still, even then, for our earlier point is that even while that's happening, we still have these debates beneath the surface, debates that people we usually associate with, again, this culture of the emerging public sphere, m- modernity, uh, and the enlightenment in England are still debating things like the reality of ghosts. So let's turn maybe a little bit to the idea of the ghost and some of these texts about the ghost. I think, again, back to Wesley, part of the reason why he wants to say that old Jeffrey exists or that other quote that, right, once you give up witchcraft, right, that is in effect giving up the Bible. It's because when you say, well, there is no world beyond what we can perceive, then that obviously means that you're calling into question proper Christian ideas about the world we cannot perceive too. So that's why it's such a, a flashpoint still, yeah. the beginning of the 18th century. And, and one of those things I think revolves around the idea of, of the ghost, right? If the soul is real, shouldn't ghosts be real too, right? I think that's one of these ideas, but let's start with that idea. What is a ghost uh, in your estimation, right? How would you say, what would you say a ghost is? So this is a huge topic in the Reformation. Yeah. They were very confused because you had some people were saying, I think like the Puritans were like, nothing, no ghosts are real. But then you have the Church of England that was like, well, no, yeah, ghosts are real. It might happen. We're not and sure. then you have yeah. Catholics who have people being possessed by little demons or right, the devil. Exactly. Yeah. So you have all the different perspectives kind of blending into one. So this issue was real important to solve. So I think the basis I like to start everything is what's the definition? So the Oxford English uh, Dictionary defines a ghost as the soul or spirit as the principle of life, also ghost of life. So basically that just means a ghost is a soul or spirit that is either a dead human being or that of a demon or an angel. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of a spirit that's just kind of here, kind of like in our realm per se, and it's just kind of there. And Again, it's a very broad definition because I think we're even still trying to figure out exactly like where does the, we still have issues with the soul come from? Right. Where does it go after we die? Do we go as we are Christians? There's even debate: uh, does it go straight to heaven? Right. The Catholics does it rest until the day of judgment? Like, and then there's really no way that we can fully know. Right. What is the relationship between soul and body? Right. When you're exactly. when you're in heaven, is are you sort of physical or spiritual? Right. A new heaven and a new earth. Right. A new Adam. Well, what does that actually mean? Right. What does that yeah. look like? Is this classic? question. And yeah. I think it's cool that we can see that they didn't even know. Right. Like the same issues that we're dealing with, maybe it's a little bit different. Right, but it's not a, a new question not fundamentally. New yeah. I would say that both like the Catholic and the Reformation Church, they would both believe in a spiritual and a physical realm. Right. Um, Again, back to Wesley, that's yeah. a thing you need for Christianity, right? Exactly. A physical world and a spiritual world. Yeah. So both would agree that these two realms exist and that they're here. That's why I mentioned like our realm, because I would say right. that those two realms, a spiritual and a physical. Um, and then the Catholic Church, they kind of had a heavier belief in this. Again, the exorcism, I think, is just a right. huge issue. Right. Uh, One of the ways I like to think about that is, like, all Christians admit that both of these things exist as sort of an obvious point. But sometimes I think the sort of membrane between them is maybe more porous 
in the Catholic understanding of it, right? Because again, intervention of the saints, right? Or demonic things that are happening, right? So again, I think you're about to say something about exorcism, right? So that's an example of the very porous nature then between that membrane. So what's, yeah, what's the, what is exorcism? What is the role of that? How does this relate to this idea of the devil and magic and possession and ghosts? Yeah. So the exorcism is basically the Catholic way of getting a demon or the soul of another out of a person. So I would say that, that, so like there's kind of two views of what is a spirit. You have the Catholic view, which it's usually, it's either the devil or it's a demon or it's an evil soul. It was someone who was like evil on earth who's now stuck here. Okay, a wandering soul or something. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of falls into a little bit like purgatory, like can soul leave. I don't, I haven't done a lot of research into that per se. Way station between heaven or hell where you... But like that's kind of where yeah. the Catholics get this idea. Because if you're stuck in like an everly hell, well, can your soul leave it? Can someone let you out? Right. Kind of. So I would say that they're more kind of like demonic, and like right. they believe in a more like demonic magic or demonic spiritual realm, right? Per se, than the Protestants are more. Which like, again, Yay. as we discussed earlier, that also enhances the power of the church, right? Because yeah. who is there to counter that? Well. The priest, right? This priest, priest who is special, right? The church, which has this special mission, as opposed to the priesthood of all believers, the non-powerful church of the Protestants, I guess. It was a way for them to control the population exactly, right. and get money because they sold indulgences. Right. There's that political perspective, right There's there. The, <laughs> yeah, which, control. Yeah. I mean, part of my paper is, yeah. I guess it was, it was, it's anti-Catholic in the sense of anti-Catholic of like the Middle Ages and the right. 18th century. Because they were doing all these things that were like, well, they were exploiting the people. Right. Uh, exploiting like, our, exploiting our souls yeah, too. Like yeah. they would, you they had, you have to pay money to get the whole indulgences. Either right. you pay money for yourself or your, your relative, your relative yeah. to get out of purgatory and get to heaven. Um, and then I would say that like their big view of the demons is that they're here to tempt, they're here to torture, uh, they're here to kind of bother humanity. Right. Uh, and especially Christians, like they're going to look at Christians and go, we're going to get you. Right. And since they make demons very angry. Yeah. Make, <laughs> and then the way for them to get them out is through the exorcism. So right. a priest would go in, if someone claims that they are possessed or By a ghost or a demon or anything. Demon. Yeah. Typically it's, it's a demon. Okay. I found my right. It's either. Mostly a they demon. Should, they, they usually say the devil or. A demon. Or a demon. Hmm. And then the priest goes in, he has holy water with him. You will like will sprinkle holy water. He usually will hold up a cross and then mm. he'll say, I did find the exact sayings, but I don't remember them off the top of my head. Oh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't say them on recording. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ooh, we don't know what's going to yeah. happen. Uh, so the, he would say these certain sayings and then the demon was supposed would leave the body. Right. Because of the, the power of those words, the power of the holy water, the power of the crucifix, right? And the power of the priest too. Yes. Yeah. But then the Reformation yeah. had a different view. So they kind of viewed it as it was more of a spirit. It wasn't only a demon. Mm. A lot of times they would say it's an angel. Oh, interesting. They would say. You could be possessed by an angel. Well, not not even possessed. Okay. They were saying like the spirits you would see would be okay. like the helping hand of an angel. Now, it depends on which group you ask. The right. Puritans right. That's were more the problem like with nothing. Protestantism, right? But There's at, multiple kinds. Yeah. As a whole, they would say that you really wouldn't get possessed. And because they would say that. It's very, it's very, very rare that the devil will actually make an appearance mm. in our realm. Mm. Uh, they say that, that he can. But they think it's very rare. They think that like all the spirits or the ghosts that you would see or the aberrations, those are all like good spirits, good angels. 
Hmm. Uh, there's some dissent there. Uh, like William Ashton would talk about him soon. Kind of has right. a, almost pseudo Catholic view. Interesting mix. But for the primarily part, part they believe that it was just like a wandering spirit that was meant uh, was here to go, do good or kind of like your guardian angel. Because they would also say that if because uh, God would have to give permission for the demons to come. So even if the demons were here, God wouldn't let them possess us because our soul is special. Our soul is what separates us from the mm. animals. And I th- I know, obviously, going back to the Sola Scriptura, there was the verse of, so when Jesus casts out the pigs, so there's, oh, they call them a legion of, like, Right, demons, we are legion or something. Oh, yeah. in these pigs. And then they possess... Or I thought, yeah, they're in a man. They're in a man, and, and then God Jesus sends them to to a herd of pigs. pigs. Yeah, but I think what this is trying to say is that our soul sets us apart. Hmm. Because then they possessed the pigs, and then they all ran off and died. When right. they were in the man, they were kind of just there. Right. And then God, and then Jesus basically said, like, leave, and they just left. Right. So then the Protestants would take this as okay, because as we are told that we can do whatever Jesus did, therefore we can cast out demons, and they do right. come. But we only have like one or two examples of demons possessing people in the Bible. Hmm. So it makes the Protestants believe it doesn't really happen that often. Right. Most of the people who say this are faking. The Catholic Church is using it to control. Right. And they would say that you don't need holy water. Right. You don't need a priest. You don't need these sayings. All you have to say in the name of Jesus Christ, our right. Lord and God and like Savior, right. be gone. You, and it is an, it's the classic priesthood of all believers, right? You exactly. don't need the special authority of the priest. You have that power. As a Christian, so I think that's one of the big differences between like the Protestant view and right. the Catholic view. I also find it fascinating that, as you say, there's this almost optimistic vein to angels and and that, and Protestantism sort of sidelining the demonic aspect and sort of emphasizing the angelic aspect of the spiritual visions that you see. There's almost an sort of ready-made argument or narrative there about Protestant optimism, Protestant modernity, right? Progress and Protestantism working together, sidelining backwardness and the devil, right? And looking forward, which is very fascinating and sort of leads into, I think, maybe the enlightenment spirit of optimism as well. Again, back to that idea that there's some things going on in the 18th century that are transforming our understanding of our relationship to the spiritual world. So you have a, a pretty cool text, right? I would argue, right? Uh, a text that's participating in these flashpoints of enlightenment thought, um, these sort of interlocking and warring debates of what the enlightenment was. Um, it's a text from 1706 by this man named, uh, named William Asseton. And Asseton writes about the possibility of apparitions, right? The possibility of apparitions. So can you sort of tell me what's going on in this text? What is his argument? What does he say actually is the possibility of there being apparitions? Yeah. yeah. Uh, William um, Asseton would say that, well, of course they exist. Um, a quote from his book, which is duly titled, The Possibility of Apparitions Being an Answer to This Question, Whether Can Departed Souls, Souls Separated from Their Bodies, So Appear As To Be Visible, Seen, and Conversed Here Upon Earth by the, by the Divine Church of England. I love 18th century <laughs> titles. They tell you exactly what the book is about, right? They're it's so just, great. Yeah. It's so plain. Yeah. So that's exactly what yeah. this is. <laughs> and then he would write, he wrote in the very beginning, uh, none but a Sadducee or an athe- atheist will pretend to deny it. 
there is an invisible world as well as a visible. Therefore, there is an invisible inhabitant as well as visible is rational and convincing. Rational and convincing. So right. he, so in he, classic yeah. Enlightenment words, classic 18th century words, used to prove the existence of things which we cannot see, right? Which we cannot see. Class, so cool, so cool. So then in, in his mind, he sees, well, of course this is spiritual. He even goes on and says, well, look up. Can't, you can see it because they're looking at like the stars and like, right. of course there would be something else out there. Right. And if we look on our physical world and our realm that's visible, well, there's you and I, like you, you, we can see everything. Right. So in his mind, it's, well, of course, if right. there's stuff here, why wouldn't there be there? Right. If we know these realms exist, therefore it mm. makes sense that there would be inhabitants of this realm. That's a very cool argument. It's sort of like, like a modern, like multiplicity of existences, like scientific argument, but being used to justify like a spiritual realm beyond, like if we can see lots of things here in the heavens, there must be lots of things up there too, even though we can't see them. Yeah. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe what um, Asseton says in regards to the soul, right? Our participation as human beings in this thing that is maybe beyond our perception, right? Beyond the visible, or you can't do an x-ray and see where your soul is, but right, Asseton says it exists and it has these things, right? Has these properties. So what are some things that Asseton says about the soul in relation to apparitions and the magical and all of that stuff? Yeah. This question and like kind of what he writes kind of goes into the point of like, can humans fake it? Oh, like, interesting. What of all this, like, how does this happen? And then he wrote that the, like, the probability of it, like it, it's there, but he writes uh, kind of in the view of like atheists would say, oh, that's totally fake. That's right. fake. And he, and he said in his book, when God closes their eyes and ears, when others' eyes and ears are opened. Huh. So basically their eyes or ears are closed, but then other people's are open right. to, open to the possibility of the soul. Right. Open to the realm. Right. right. And then he wrote, I'm just going to clearly read, I'm just going to read it because he, I think he defines it perfectly. Human souls uh, departed have not only a capacity to appear as having life and sense in motion, but also they have sometimes have an inclination to appear and be employed by the services of man. And this we presume to suppose because of the great love and affection they fulfill, retained for their friends and acquaintances amongst whom they lived and whom they lately came. Uh, that's, that is also fascinating to me. He's sort of basically saying that souls in the afterlife still possess a will, still possess personality, still possess a relationship to, as he says, the people they just left, right? The people from whom they so lately came, right? They have affection, they have will. And in a sense, maybe you could say that when he says human souls, his emphasis is kind of on the human element of that in a way too, right? That these are fundamental to our humanity. And again, further evidence of this world beyond that, which we can perceive, right? This world of the invisible that is true. And according to Asseton, it's only the atheist who would deny that. Only the atheist that would say that there is no world beyond uh, the immediate world of our materialistic Experience and again, that that must mean that there's something like maybe ghosts or something like angels or something right that's interacting with us. That's not just the emptiness of of existence around us, right? And then the reason why he believes that the human soul can come, I guess, back to earth or kind of wander right. around is that he goes, well, angels can't. Like they're not confined to heaven. We get that mm. in the Bible. Like Gabriel came. Oh yeah, he speaks uh, to Mary, right? Yeah. Back, so, yeah. so they're not confined. So why would the human soul? Mm. And that's he says, like, go back to the prize idea. They're here to do good. They're here to help. 
Oh, like, they're yes, not here exactly. where the Catholic know they're here to tempt, they're here to do evil, right. they're demons. Uh, presents are like, well, they're here, whether it's rare that they come, but when they do, they're helpful. Right. But they believe, they kind of believed, I found some sources, like the guardian angels. Like they truly right. believe that each one of us had a guardian angel. Hmm. And I think even Luther said that that might potentially be who he saw. Oh, interesting. That old man was his guardian angel. So it's not a temptation then, it's a guardian angel. No, yeah. 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 So it's kind of like all this like, and I think they fully don't define it. Like, as I say, like, they define it, but there's someone's like, well, angels exist, therefore right. human souls exist. Right, and I'm exactly. like, well, yeah. are you sure about that? Right, yeah. But to them, it's like, well, no, this exists, therefore, therefore this. It, and I think it just comes down to the 21st century understanding of things. It's just of different. Proof, yeah, of proof. Yeah. We're just very different. Like, we, everything must be proved. We need all this factual right. evidence. And what counts as proof is different for us. Exactly. Right. And then so. I think it goes into also my maybe like my law perspective. Like I look at my like, well, there, there has oh, to be yeah. <laughs> a certain law right. to impact it. Where they're like, well, no, we exist. We know that the spiritual exists. Therefore, there's inhabitants of both. Angels can can cross over. So so can the souls who are also inhabitants of this spiritual realm. Hmm. Well, I think that's a fascinating thought for us to maybe begin to wrap up some conclusions about this whole period. This period between Luther. And Wesley, this period between the great initiator of the Reformation throwing his inkwell at the devil and John Wesley's boyhood with old Jeffrey. What are maybe some concluding, some parting thoughts you might give us about the connections between the magical, the ghostly, the world beyond our perception and this period of the long Reformation? Yeah, I think that's the main thing. We always think that the Reformation not reform, but like the Protestant thinkers are always anti-magic or anti-ghost, right. anti-spiritual. But I don't think that's true. No, I, I, I think we, yeah, I think we've established that. I, I think yeah. that's just the biggest thing. Is it's not anti-magic, though anti-Catholic. Right. It's just time. Like that's everything I'm Which finding. Which is, isn't surprising when you stop and think about it. Of course they would be. <laughs> that's sort of the point of Protestantism, the protest against Catholicism. You're trying to throw off exactly the. Whole old religion in favor right. of something new, like the whole go back to the scripture, right. script, scripture alone. Right. Faith they, alone. Grace they alone. They really yeah. focus on those issues and they look at the, and then, well, that we, I think again, it goes to the Catholic church. They would exploit the people. Right. They would take the money. Like they built these grand um, right. cathedrals. Right. And you're like, St. Well, Peter's itself. Yeah. Like, where are you getting this money? Well, you're taking it from the people and right. maybe you're doing it in a shady way. Right. I think in one of the councils of Trent, they even said, yeah, indulgences, not great, but we need the oh, yeah. money. The Fifth Lateran Council. Oh, that, yeah, exactly. So, the Fifth so they Council. even know, but they're like, we can't. So I think then the whole point is if it's unnatural, if we can't explain it which is basically the definition of magic. Right. Therefore, it's all magic, and all magic is bad based off the right. Bible. Right. Therefore, the Catholicism is bad. Right. Transubstantiation is bad. The saints are bad, right? The magic of priests is bad. But yeah. even in that, all the Protestants didn't fully believe it. Right. I think really only the Puritans were really the only right. group that were like, no. Right. And I think part of it is they were trying to be, they were trying to separate themselves from right. all the different uh, like r radical sects that were breaking out in the Reformation of England, right. that they had to be more aggressive. Like right. They had to make this, they had to be different from the Puritans who were also kind of this very strong, like, no, this doesn't right. exist. So I think really only the Puritans are the ones that are like, all magic is bad right. or it's not even here. Right. And I guess, yeah, it sort of takes a while for people to sort of shake off these cultural habits 
from the Middle Ages, maybe, is a way to think about it. And the Puritans are maybe the most vigorous shakers, right? The people <laughs> who, who get rid of them first, right? But then sort of over these several centuries, right, from the 16th to the 18th century, it's increasingly people shaking off those old cultural forms of medieval, the medieval magical, and sort of through this process of you, of you, that you've described of sort of optimistic, we might say optimistic Protestant magicalness, we might say, or almost magicalness, that we get to this sort of increasing demystification of the world, right? Once you eliminate evil spirits, the next step is makes it pretty easy to eliminate good spirits too, yeah. right? So, yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Cole. Right? These texts are, are fascinating. It's fascinating to think about Protestants, Protestantism's relationship uh, to these ideas, these ideas of the magical and the ghost and that which we cannot perceive in our senses. So thanks for, for joining us for this. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Yep, it's been awesome. <laughs>